This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... CarcosaCon. Daria Polarczyk. Rutslav and Krakow. And Tadeusz Kaszkiusko. Prophecies of Doom. Protagonists slopping through the wilderness. Battles of blood and mud. At least in Gloom of Thrones, you know the story will get an ending. Gloom of Thrones parodies characters and calamities from the Game of Thrones universe and combines them with the award-winning Gloom format. The goal of the game is to heap as much misery as you can on your characters before eventually killing them off. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of the original Gloom game, and of hits like Once Upon a Time and Ars Magica. Gloom of Thrones is kickstarting until April 29th. Search for it on Kickstarter, or go to atlas-games.com slash gloomofthrones. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because as the saying goes, if you aim for the porcelain throne, you best not miss. Did you set up the script to give that line to me? Might have. You know nothing, Jon Snow. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But hold on, hold on, Robin, there are no miniatures, because the game is told in an abstraction of fear and terror. And, and I think those uh, those Doritos are, are kebab or uh, paprika flavored. Right, they are, and it's not Peter Frampton at all, it's some sort of Polish nobleman who is probably a vampire, and it might even be a tapestry. Holy garp, Robin, we are not in the friendly confines of the gaming hut. We are in the equally friendly but far more haunted confines of Chocha Castle. Because we are talking about CarcosaCon in Poland and Polish gaming in general. Are we not? I hope we are. Otherwise, this intro is going to make no sense. Yes, and uh, for our Polish listeners, this will be Ken and Robin hilariously mispronounce all of your words. So Exactly. Uh, for example, I think it's... Choha Castle, I, I think, but uh, we're going to we get can all pretend wrong. that instead of rudely mispronouncing Polish words, we are hilariously mispronouncing the German version of those Polish words. <laughs> Take that, hated German occupiers! Uh, that, that's an asterisk for you. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> we both uh, got the opportunity to go to the same convention, uh, CarcosaCon, which was held at Choha Castle, uh, which is near a river in the Silesian Mountains. It was a great experience. And uh, I thought we would uh, talk a bit about uh, this convention and uh, also uh, the Polish gaming scene in general. So the venue, Ken, is pretty amazing. Yes. Uh, it is a castle that is uh, used for at least one other gaming event, the uh, College of Wizardry, which is a big LARP, uh, which is... Uh, which is not TM Harry Potter. No, it is not TM Harry Potter. That TM has been filed off. Yeah. Uh, this is a castle that was built in the 13th century. Uh, rebuilt during the uh, Renaissance. More stuff was added onto it. And as usually happens, often happens to castles, there was a fire and it was damaged and then it was reconstructed in the early part of the 20th century by a, uh, a wealthy industrialist uh, during that brief little golden era at the beginning of the last century where uh, everything was hunky-dory in Poland. And uh, then things, <laughs> things the uh, as they do in Poland uh, stopped being hunky-dory. Yes. Uh, the uh, It was taken over by the Nazis during the war, and they used it as a, a radio room. And uh, there's a display down in the basement as part of the tour that is a uh, historically whimsical, shall we say, recreation of a Nazi radio yes. room. Yes. It's what if the Nazis had decorated their radio room with a collection of random maps and were mannequins, <laughs> which I think Harry Turtledove wrote that. I think that's a yeah. five-part novel by him. Yeah, the, the plastic Nazis are, are the easiest to sneak up on. So they are. Good. We did it, for example. And uh, after that, of course, uh, the castle changed hands again. It became a sort of a resort retreat for uh, communist uh, party government officials. And you can still see the trace of that because there's books everywhere uh, there's all these library, libraries with glass, uh, lined shelves and, uh, they're, uh, in many different rooms uh, in the main public areas of the, of the castle. There is a secret passage from the library to a different library. Yes. 
How uh, perfect so, uh, is that? This is the first time I've ever been at a convention where during a seminar I was given a secret door opened in the wall and a bunch of books uh, swung uh, my way and someone uh, uh, stepped out. Uh, so uh, uh, beat that uh, Gen Con or any other convention. Yeah, no secret passage having. But but among the books were, for example, the 49-volume Complete Works and Life of Lenin and uh, Das Kapital and Helpful Polish and many other fine works. Yes. Uh, so like uh, any castle, of course, it comes with cats and ghosts. I don't know if they're ghosts of cats. Uh, I, I, I could not tell you. Both the cats I saw were material and did manifest one of them in the daytime. So... What can you say? M.R. James, however, would say probably ghosts because they were furry. Right. Apparently there are two ghosts, uh, both classic template ghosts. Uh, there is a white lady uh, who is uh, periodically uh, seen and also a crying child. And I don't know if the child is crying because of the room downstairs where they have uh, torture implements. <laughs> so yeah, And the mentors. Yeah. Or not, hashtag not Dementors. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, something has been stored year-round from the uh, not Harry Potter LARP. Uh, there's also a well uh, in which uh, legendarily uh, uh, errant spouses, or rather, sorry to say, errant wives were allegedly <laughs> Or thrown. allegedly errant wives. <laughs> yes, allegedly errant, or possibly wives who had property that other people wanted to Or possibly wives on. who were too intolerant of errancy. Who can yes. say? The larger point is they went in the well. That that seems like the story to me. Um, and there's even this sort of uh, cheerfully gruesome painting of people being uh, thrown in the well. So, but uh, I'm sure the uh, the either the uh, the people running the hotel or the people running the convention, none of them will throw you in a well if if you go. Right. Yeah. The, the, there's a grating. They probably couldn't do it. And uh, the uh, castle has since been privatized. It's been turned into a hotel. So there are. I think it's technically still owned by the government. It's just turned into a hotel. I think the army still owns it, is what they said. Uh, well, then then it's a lovely uh, uh, army hotel with uh, uh, better amenities than, than you would think on that basis. Right, yes. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely little resort hotel uh, snugged into the mountains, gorgeous views, stairs that will mostly not kill you. <laughs> not for want of trying. No, no. They will, they will do their darndest to kill you. You can tell that... Uh, Insurance liability has not yet come to Poland no. uh, by, the, by the degree to which we could just wander around and uh, clamber up narrow stairs or uh, a, a rickety ladder up to the very uh, top of the place. But anyway, it's, it's gorgeous and all the details are uh, amazing. The uh, <laughs> uh, cabinets all have wooden carved figures. Well, not all of them, but there's a ton of wooden carved figures on the cabinets and there's uh, big wooden plates with images and emblems on them. And, and it really... Uh, if you're gonna run heads a on Cthulhu, the wall. yeah. If you're gonna run a Cthulhu event, this uh, this brought atmosphere in spades, and it also brought a ton of Polish Cthulhu gamers and a few uh, foreigners, and not just guests. There was a guy who flew all the way to Choka from California, from uh, Carmel, California. He heard about it from Chaosium, I guess, and said. That sounds like my brand of vodka and was there playing just like everybody else. So that was pretty exciting that they've already got an international clientele. Yeah, the convention is, is largely held in English. Uh, there were some Polish language panels and some people were running their games in Polish, but uh, most of the games were run in English. And so those of us who are not uh, Anglophones uh, were playing in their uh, second or, or third or whatever it is uh, language. And so... I'm always uh, really amazed when I go to uh, countries whose first language is not English and see how uh, great everybody is at playing in that language. Because I would, I would certainly feel as intimidated as heck uh, trying to do that. But then I'm unilingual, so, right. so what do I know? Yes, you're not even Canada's two languages, much less uh, some no. yet third language. <laughs> so I ran a game. I ran a king and yellow game, and it uh, went uh, really well. The story we heard is that Polish gamers tend to really bite down into their characterization and are all about uh, fleshing out the scenes and making sure every little last bit of uh, banter is is had and a little less focused on uh, momentum. And uh, I kind of found that to be true a bit during uh, my thing and uh, wound up having time loops in it. So they spent most of it in the same room uh, uh, on a recurring uh, sort of Groundhog Day basis. And that... Uh, Worked uh, pretty well. People seem to really dig it. And Mark Morrison, who we will hear an interview from uh, a few weeks from now, uh, also found that to be the case. But there's always the proviso 
when you go to a, a, another beautiful land and are told, uh, well, there's something very specific about the way we role play here. We're, you know, we don't do it like everybody else. And then you go to a game store and there's the AD&D and the Warhammer and uh, uh, what have you on the walls. And it's like, is it true of all gamers in Poland or Denmark or Finland, or is it just true of the people who come to this convention? So right. uh, I'm not sure if we're uh, safe in generalizing, but we can certainly generalize that the game scene is booming in Poland. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I guess historically it began uh, mostly in the mid nineties, just after Poland became uh, independent again of the Soviet Union. And uh, the first big hit in Poland was Warhammer. Because I guess when you have been occupied by the Nazis and the Soviets, Warhammer is a gleeful game of escapism. So they, they played Warhammer fantasy role playing was sort of their first big hit. And then Call of Cthulhu followed in fairly short order, although not, I think, immediately, but it was, it was another early entry into the, into the uh, mind space of Polish gaming. And uh, paranoia was also really big. Yeah. <laughs> on the, I wonder why uh, segment. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> uh, hear takes on quite a different flavor when you're playing it, uh, in Poland. Um, and so the, uh, the, the, the Polish gaming scene for a while, uh, we were told by Polish gamers was stigmatized and was, uh, for kids or college kids was done in your parents' basement. But as with the rest of the world has been moving out into the larger, not just the larger nerdosphere, but the larger thing people duosphere. And I think in Poland, it got a big leg up by the fact that the European board gaming uh, boom has definitely hit Poland and a lot of people board game in Poland. And so from board gaming to hobby gaming to role playing gaming is not as big a jump as it might have been to go from nothing to role playing gaming the way that we had to in the seventies. And the uh, explosion of uh, role playing here uh, is also happening there and for the same reason. So there's a very popular streamer who is bringing new people in. Uh, the fact that it was on Stranger Things uh, brought in a lot of uh, new interest. So uh, it really is, uh, if not a global phenomenon, a phenomenon that uh, stretches uh, far beyond our little uh, parochial borders where we think we've thought of everything and uh, it can't possibly be the same uh, elsewhere, but uh, guess what? It is. And uh, as evidence of the strength of Polish role-playing, the Black Monk Games, the hosts of Carcosicon, recently did a Kickstarter for a Polish translation of the seventh edition of Call of Cthulhu that raised something like a million and change in Zloty, uh, which is over... Three hundred thousand uh, U.S. dollars, which would have been a good Kickstarter in America, much less in Poland, where it seemed to sort of blow the doors off and impress everybody. So there is a huge interest, not just in uh, gaming, but in specifically in the king of gaming, Call of Cthulhu. So uh, good for Poland. Well done, everybody. Uh, there's also a thriving uh, game cafe scene. Mm-hmm. So when we were in uh, in Wroclaw, we were uh, our our minder, uh, Daria of Black Mug Games, was uh, looking around for uh, a gaming cafe, and it turned out to be in the restaurant under our hotel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was a really big uh, gaming cafe. And multi-level. Multi-level, and it was a Monday night, and it was packed. Yeah. And then uh, the next night we went to uh, went on to Krakow, and uh, there was a game cafe called uh, Rulia, which has been... Uh, started out as a board game cafe, but under its current owners, the lovely Matouche and Anna has uh, switched its uh, focus more to role playing. Not that you can't also play board games there, yeah. but and, and they had a lot of floor space. It was in in the basement under another business, and there were sort of curtained off uh, little areas where you could go and sort of uh, have off a twisty corridor. Yes, and weird masks on the wall and the uh, uh, Lovecraftian uh, decor throughout. So. And, and of course, it's a bar, so there's uh, all sorts of uh, Lovecraft-themed cocktails, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a subject near and dear to my own heart, of course. So you could try the Color Out of Space or uh, various other uh, Lovecraftian cocktails. So certainly, uh, Cthulhu culture is uh, pretty big there. And I guess you were asking about uh, when Lovecraft first appeared in Poland, and I guess it was, what, the early 70s? The early 70s is apparently the first... Uh, beginnings of a comprehensive translation. He'd apparently appeared in the sort of Polish literary magazine, the only one that survived communism in the sense of was still around under communism. And a couple of the stories were apparently translated 
uh, I think as early as the 50s or 60s, and appeared in that magazine. And then Lovecraft himself, uh, I guess following the French cultural boom for Lovecraft, got uh, some uh, some of the key stories were translated in the 70s, and then I think in the 90s they were all translated into Polish. Most of the stories had been at least... Uh, people were aware of them by the by the mid seventies. People who cared, and then uh, there was another big uh, Lovecraft boom again, following the global one, and also following the suddenly freedom uh, boom in I think Western literature of all kinds in Poland. And Lovecraft sort of swept up, and there are now lovely uh, uniform Polish editions, not just of Lovecraft, but of things like Joshi's biography of Lovecraft is in Polish and was sitting on the walls. Uh, on the bookshelves of uh, the Rulia Game Cafe in Krakow, a, a phrase I will never tire of saying, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so gaming is, is spreading uh, throughout the world, and uh, if you, uh, listener, would love to go to uh, uh, the uh, beautiful nation of, of Poland and uh, hang around for a bit before and afterwards and then go to a, a cool, intimate uh, game convention in a uh, haunted in, in castle a place that can't be beat uh, atmosphere wise uh, I believe they're they've already got a date uh, for uh, for next year they've uh, decided to push it a week forward so they're not going from gamma straight into a convention they're running mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, world travelers among you might uh, might consider going because uh, there's lots of uh, programming in English and uh, on that note, Uh, We're going to get to a commercial, and then on the other side of it, uh, we are going to go back in time and talk a bit to uh, Daria of Black Monk Games, who has some uh, really cool stories of how they're spreading the love of Call of Cthulhu uh, in Poland. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? Welcome back to another episode of Ken and or Robin Talk with someone else. And today, Ken and Robin are talking with Daria Pilarczyk of Black Monk Games in Poland. Hello, guys. Hey. Hey. And uh, if you couldn't guess, we are in Poland. Thanks, not in small part, to Daria. So thanks, Daria. You're welcome. I hope you enjoy it. People go to any length to get on the podcast nowadays. Yeah. So um, tell the viewers, the home viewer, what it is that you do at Black Monk and why it is that we compare you to Jeff Tidball, the highest (laughs) honor, by the way, in gaming in America. Okay, we are... I am doing pretty much everything (laughs) at Black Monk. Uh, Okay, but... um, so the company is almost 10 years old now and we're doing board games. We've started with Munchkin and we do other crazy party games like, like Glam, Flax, uh, Voodoo, Kragmorta and we did also some Cthulhu games in the past, uh, more serious like Kingsport Festival for example. So what I'm doing, like I'm doing, uh, 
maybe I'm some kind of product manager, maybe some uh, project manager. Uh, so I am with the owner of the of the company, Michael. We are doing like uh, every decision about what we will print, uh, when we will print, uh, how do we do promotional stuff. Uh, so I'm supervising my wonderful team at the office, uh, the graphic designers, marketing guys. Uh, Michael is taking care of the uh, sales segment. Um, but it's all connect. Like, you know, we are not a very big company. We have eight people in the office right now. So everyone. So at this point, all of the everything. companies in the States are going, eight is a lot of people. <laughs> is a lot of people? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, for Pond, it's not very big. Like, we have, uh, uh, so, uh, we do everything. Like, there is no, like, you are doing only this and you are doing only this. We don't have a specific, uh, job restriction like you can we can you cannot do something like that so with this we we share everything we do we do it together but with michael we are making all the decisions like which are very uh important for the company so where does black monk fit in among other polish companies how many are there how big are they uh there is a lot of polish company connected with board games i have I have feeling that now everyone wants to be a board game publisher in Poland. Like there are companies, they have like two, three games. Uh, there, some of them are just uh, doing the crowdfunding stuff. And uh, now it's very easy to get a license for some game. Like you are going to Essen Fair. They are the biggest uh, first board games first in, I think in in the whole world. I yeah, think no, not only in Europe but the whole world. And there is so many publishers, and everyone to be like have a licensor in other countries. So you just approach them, and if they don't work with somebody, uh, so they are very willing to start cooperation with the new company. So it's very easy. Uh, there are a few the biggest publisher in Poland. I think maybe five or six. Uh, some of them are also doing the games for the international market, not only the licensing stuff. Uh, for now, we are mostly doing the licensing stuff. So uh, we uh, find a game in the United States or in other country in Europe and we sign a license. We translate the game. Uh, so I also need to make sure that translation is okay. And then the, our graphics prepare the files and then we are taking care of the production stuff. So speaking of licenses, the license that uh, Black Monk most recently acquired, I don't know if it's most recently, but most interestingly to us, yes. is for the greatest role-playing game of all time, Call of Cthulhu, which you're doing in Polish. Yes. Was there a previous Call of Cthulhu in Polish, and now you are uh, yes. new heirs? Uh, yes. So um, many years ago, there was a previous edition of Call of Cthulhu made by another company, but they weren't very successful. So they are mostly out of the market right now. So, and uh, for for now, uh, until uh, we announce our Call of Cthulhu project, uh, there was only one company, uh, one one company which are like successful in RPGs. Uh, it's Copernicus Corporation. They were doing uh, Cyberpunk and the Warhammer, and now they're continuing with the uh, Witcher and the Warhammer a fourth edition. Uh, but there were like few other smaller uh, publishers, like self-publishing company. They were doing small project. And uh, last year we announced that we are doing the Call of Cthulhu, and it was pretty big, like for Polish industry and the Polish market of RPGs. It was like very big announcement. And you crowdfunded it and did amazingly well. Yes, uh, but we put in a lot of effort to do so. And uh, for we announced the game around April, May last year, and our crowdfunding campaign was uh, at the end of the year. So uh, for the six months, even more, we were doing so much stuff. Like our guys from marketing staff and uh, from the event manager was really great at this moment, and he's all very very great uh, person and we did like uh, 20 or 30 different events and we were working with the pubs we were all playing and board game pubs in Poland that to promote the Call of Tulu we even went at the biggest music festival in Poland which is Poland Rock and it's like uh, a lot of people there and we're, we're trying to show people that you don't need to have like a basement and uh, lock yourself somewhere in the small place to play so you can play at the kitchen table everywhere like it's the RPG is for everyone and I think we did we did good this was the most amazing marketing story I heard about Black Monk yeah. at the con which is as you said you 
had a big tent at a music festival. Yes. And you were drawing in people who were unfamiliar with role-playing and got them sitting playing Call of Cthulhu when they could have been off listening to a band. And, yes. And it worked. Yes, it worked perfectly. Uh, we also gathered a lot of people who was like uh, doing good stuff for RPG in Poland. Well, like we have some kind of ambassadors and they were promoting Call of Cthulhu, but mostly they were promoting the game, the RPG, like you can play it. Like it's not a very mystical thing you, you can do with your friends, but no, nobody uh, should know about it. It's like something very common, like board games like in the mainstream now in Poland, but RPGs not yet. So we are trying to show them you like board games, but you are looking for something more. This is RPG. And you can play Call of Tulu. You like Arkham Horror, Eld- Eldritch Horror, and other RPG relay storytelling board games, now you can move uh, one step forward and have RPG at your home and it's not very hard to try and it's not very hard to, uh, to start. We published the quick starter for the Call of Cthulhu and we are giving it for free like everywhere, like really everywhere and people are, okay, so how can I start playing RPG? This is quick starter you can do it, so it's not very uh, not very hard to start and I think it, it worked well with, with everything like it's hard to tell now what one thing worked like the best we had very a lot of pieces and they worked together perfectly right now role playing in Poland it began with Warhammer about yes. the mid 90s yes. what I understand and then has slowly trickled into the basements and college um, uh, dorm rooms of Poland and is this the moment at which like in America like other places it's sort of blowing up and becoming uh, um, a trend thanks to the internet, or is, I hope is so. Poland on its own trajectory? What's... I hope so. That it will be like something uh, uh, which will continue, like not only our crowdfunding campaign. Uh, this year will be very uh, strange and uh, for Polish market. Uh, like uh, you said, you will publish the Call of Cthulhu. There will be new edition of Dungeons and Dragons, new edition on Warhammer and The Witcher and Savage Worlds and a few another independent uh, RPGs. We, uh, we are also doing as a company Tales of Equestria. It's my little po- it's the RPG in the My Little right. Pony uh, universe. Because when we started to pro- do promotional stuff and going to different events, uh, we were approached by parents. And, oh, what is this? Uh, I can play in that? Yeah, this is Call of Tulu. You are doing that. You are the investigator. You are looking for mysteries. And you are trying to save the world. Oh, can I play with my children? Hmm. Mm. <laughs> no, not necessary, this one. <laughs> and after a few events like that, we said, okay, so there is uh, uh, people need the game you can play with your children. And we are looking for different IPs to, to do something like that. And we chose My Little Pony, and it's doing also very well for us now. Right. And because that obviously is a, uh, another huge lobe and always has yes. been. It's just that it hasn't been brought into the RPG mainstream. Yes. Yes. But simming My Little Pony is probably bigger than any role-playing game ever published. <laughs> yes. So, so the, the, the goal is to connect that up. Is is, um, is there a, Is this like a two-pronged marketing then for you? You're going to be going to young teen-oriented events with My Little Pony and to rock concerts with Call of Cthulhu, or are you going to try and cross those uh, I think we are going to cross this thing because uh, we we are surprised how many Call of Cthulhu players are interested in playing My Little Pony RPG. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really... And, uh, it, it is one of the mascots in Narlathotep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we cannot do, say that. <laughs> officially. It, it's not the official position of Black Mike Games. No. Yes. Uh, we, like, officially we cannot, like, mix those two brands, like, do the My Little Pony Cthulhu thing, of course, because the IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are not, we are not allowed to do something like that, but... Players can do whatever they want. Like, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, oh, we, we cannot we forbid. Right. Yeah, we no, cannot stop absolutely. them. Absolutely. If you, in the privacy of your own home, <laughs> wish to worship My Little Pony as an eldritch herald of <laughs> that which shall not be named, that's up to you. Yes, definitely. Right. Uh, uh, we, you can send us some pictures <laughs> about <laughs> that, but we cannot publish them, but of course, we're, uh, we are doing the same convention. We will have also the tent, as you mentioned, for the military partners. So they will be staying like close to each other. And so the parents can go there and children can come here and they, or they can mix. Uh, so uh, we will be doing different events with My Little Pony, of course, like the 
uh, stuff when the parents come with their children. Uh, but I think uh, it's something you cannot like put a border. So it's not like we can, we will do completely different stuff for both of those games. We do promote them simultaneously. So it will mix a little for sure. But So uh, make all the English speakers listening super jealous by telling them what you're going to be doing for Call of Cthulhu in Polish that they would have to learn a whole other language to be able to read. <laughs> yes, uh, for now we have, uh, because we, uh, our uh, claim of our campaign that we are calling to, we are calling to, to Poland. So our objective was to make a lot of scenarios based in Poland. There is no, no, no new setting or such, just scenarios in our country in different times, like, I don't know, a present times on our communist time like uh, 40, 50 years ago. So we have 16 different scenarios right now. And 16? 16, yeah, 16 different scenarios. Uh, they will be published in June, July, something like that. And uh, so they will be no, not in English for now, maybe in the future, but we, we cannot... That's in Polish, it. not in English. Yeah, in Polish. <laughs> in Polish, not English. Uh, yeah, so um, after that, uh, we cannot say what we are uh, doing next. Yet it's not official. Sixteen scenarios is, is yeah, a good, that's a good scenarios, solid yes. no one, no Yeah, we have it. like we have a lot of people. Uh, we uh, in our team, uh, the creative one for Call of Cthulhu. We have a lot of people that uh, who weren't playing RPG for many years, and they are back. Like you know, we we said we are doing Call of Cthulhu, and they okay, I will play that again. And uh, we have we had a lot of a lot of people like that during our campaign. They were like approaching us, and then oh when I were young I played Call of Cthulhu but why did you stop? Oh because I'm grown up but you can play Call of Cthulhu and any other RPG wherever you want it's not like that for children it's for everyone so uh, there was like this uh, idea in Poland that you have to be a kid or in the high school in the college to play uh, RPGs and now we are trying to show people that you can play whichever age you are so uh, can you uh, recall a couple of examples of the concepts for a couple of the scenarios? Okay, so uh, we have one scenario which is like for be- like for beginners, like for beginners, because we also during our campaign we had a lot of people like, okay, so I backed your project because it's, it looks really cool, but how do I play that? And it was okay, so we have a lot of people like the beginners. So we have few. Uh, for example, one is. Uh, a little bit the stranger thing kind, like uh, the kids are in this city, they're trying to find uh, the friend who is missing, and they learn a lot of stuff about different people living in their city who are not quite normal and mm-hmm. so on, and they have some influence from, from the old ones and the different different things, but uh, this is the mystery, we have one uh, we have few scenarios connecting us to the there is a, something called and uh, there, there was a secret police during the communist time, and they are solving different, uh, different mysteries about why, for example, w- one group of people have more power in our government than the other one. And there is also a mystery connected to that. And uh, there is something connected with the World War Two and why uh, Germans invaded Poland, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were trying to put uh, our scenarios in a specific timeline so and to to explain some different uh, uh some different um things were which re- really happened like uh, and we finding the the new excuse for that why did things happen and secret history secret secret history why what something happened now, like it, that. are you building a common like a polish arkham like a place there's going to be some creepy town on the Baltic or something that's... And not yet. Not yet. We are not doing something like that. We wanted to have different scenarios for uh, different people. Like, any time you want to play, uh, it's okay. So it's not one thing connected all of the scenarios. Right. Uh, but we already have a, a plan for a longer campaign. So uh, one scenarios is, one of the scenarios is already being, like, extended for prequel and sequel. And mm-hmm. the sequel will be more, it will be like Pulp 2. And the sequel is not, not, not Pulp 2, but it's also very good to have, like, a lot of talented people involved. Right. 
So the settings are all over Poland. And yes, one might be in Warsaw and one might be in Krakow. Yeah, and- there is there is different in in mountains in Poznan at the seaside. So uh, in some kind of uh, village near the Warsaw, for example. So everybody can go to that place and and see it like it's it's existing place in Poland. So. Uh, well, speaking of places in Poland, I think you're going to go t- uh, take us to see another castle. So it's time to wrap up this interview. And uh, thank you so much, Daria, for talking to yes, us. Yes, thanks very much. Thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. The best of Askfageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through. Keep this podcast out of the punishment well alongside such Patreon heroes as... Robert Wolf, Peter Nix. Philip Masters. And Tenant Reed. It's now once again time for Travel Advisory, and often Travel Advisory will be the segment where we talk about a convention, but this time we saw a bunch of stuff in Poland uh, that we'd like to briefly uh, talk about. We have, as you hear, we've hived it off into its own segment, and this will give us much more uh, opportunity to mispronounce uh, Polish words. So uh, we uh, spent a uh, morning in uh, Raslov, or as uh, you might mistakenly, as I did, try to sound it out, Roklaw. It was a Monday, so the museums were closed, so we just got to wander around and see uh, the architecture and uh, one of the uh, big churches, the uh, footprint of John Paul II, uh, was uh, very noticeable there, and it's a, a very uh, lovely town full of uh, colorfully painted uh, downtown buildings. And then, of course, the occasional uh, remnant of uh, Soviet-era housing, which is, uh, they painted them yellow, but, you know. Yeah, there's only so much you can do. Um, uh, we saw the Oder River. Uh, they have uh, what I think, once it's not in March, there's uh, a sort of picnic grounds around it, so it's very pleasant. And we were told in, in many stops on our tour of Rutzlov, uh, this is where you can stop and drink beer. You, you began to think maybe they should have marked the places you couldn't stop and drink beer instead. <laughs> but it was a lovely town, but we were only there for a little while, mostly to break our journey on the way to Krakow, Poland's ancient capital, and one of the places the devil ran a extension campus of the Skolomance, apparently. Uh, according to medieval uh, superstition mongers. But uh, Krakow has more to it than the Devil's School. It has the oldest university in Poland, uh, where Copernicus hung out and came up with uh, heliocentrism, amongst other fine ideas, and lots of other great stuff we saw. Uh, I think we began, really, with sort of a, a nighttime ramble around the city, which put you in the in the proper medieval mood. We saw the dragon of Vevel Castle. He's now ensconced in bronze, and we were assured that he will breathe fire, just not right now. Uh, beginning of April. So if you go there now, he's, he's breathing fire. He's breathing fire. We went to the Wolichka Salt Mine, uh, which is about a, what, a 20-minute uh, train ride, uh, if there aren't track repairs, which there mm-hmm. were, uh, yeah. south, well, not south, uh, from Krakow. I don't know where it, It's southeast from Krakow. So this is a uh, gigantic uh, complex that is now a uh, tourist attraction, but... Up until the 90s, uh, beginning in the medieval period, was a working uh, salt mine. And you might not think that's uh, so visually impressive, but not only are there uh, displays with mannequins showing you the uh, super dangerous ways that uh, medieval miners 
uh, got a hold of this incredibly uh, precious material that was worth at that time as much as gold. Uh, but there's all sorts of carvings that were carved out of solid rock salt by uh, the miners, including a cathedral with uh, technically a chandeliers with uh, uh, rock salt crystal uh, lights that are lit up from within and a, a relief of uh, the Last Supper, among other things. There's, there's a, the lovely uh, images of saints all over the place carved out of rock salt. And then throughout the uh, uh, mine itself, they also maintain it as sort of a museum, so you can see how people dug salt out of the earth in the 17th century before there were dynamites and such things. Uh, it, would, it turns out people used to take tiny horses down into those salt mines and make them turn big cranks, which seems awful until you realize also people were doing that and someone had to take the salt out. And the jobs were union. They were very well paid. King Casimir... The great himself wrote the law codes that said um, you had to pay them a good amount of money. You couldn't send criminals down there and uh, you could pass your job on from father to son if you wanted to uh, so that uh, the, the salt mines provided guaranteed lifetime employment. So in a way, they were a prefiguring of socialism in all its forms. Our uh, very entertaining tour guide. Uh, use the phrase, the horses spent time down there. Yes. Yep, they were just right. hanging around. I think if back. you are a Polish tour guide, the passive voice becomes your friend. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so uh, there, one of the uh, rock salt uh, sculpture displays is of Princess Kinga, the uh, semi-legendary and now uh, sainted patron of, uh, I don't know, Poland and salt. And uh, the legend goes that she, uh, she was a Hungarian princess, and when she married a uh, pious... Polish king, she uh, said, you know, what you need here is a salt mine. That, that'll that get you going. And so she threw her engagement ring into the earth, and lo and behold, a salt mine sprang up around it, and the first lump of salt that was uh, uh, hewn uh, from the earth uh, had her engagement ring in it. So her uh, uh, her husband uh, didn't have to be miffed at that after all, because... Uh, uh, Bonanza, a salt mine, right. worth a lot of money. Technically, the legend is she threw her ring in a Hungarian salt mine, and they found it in the Polish salt mine uh-huh. that she discovered through uh, holiness and also from having brought Hungarian salt miners with her to look for salt mines. Uh, so it was a, a teleporting uh, engagement ring yes. that made a salt mine. But she is now the patron saint of salt miners because when uh, John Paul II came back to Poland and became pope, he made up for lost time and uh, beatified a great number of Polish uh, religious and historical figures. There was, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting someone that got beatified by uh, Pope John Paul II. Right, and uh, Kinga also turned into a, a brand of uh, mineral water, uh, appropriately so. Yes. Uh, we went to see Wallow Castle, which is sort of the centerpiece of the old town. Uh, this is a, a castle slash fortress that uh, existed uh, through the late Renaissance into the uh, uh, sort of near the end of the Renaissance, well, still exists. It is now a museum. Uh, it is, has been extensively reconstructed because it went through a, a long period, uh, not even just during uh, various occupations, but even before then, of, uh, of decrepitude and vandalism. It was used as a barracks and all sorts of things. So the uh, some of the treasures, the art treasures in it, are original to it, but others are uh, have been gathered from elsewhere uh, in order to uh, convey kind of what it would have uh, looked like, including uh, the... Uh, audience chamber of uh, Stephen Bathory, who uh, was a, a distant relative of, of Elizabeth Bathory and for a while the king of Poland by marriage. And if you look up top to the ceiling, there's all of these disembodied wooden heads staring down at you from the ceiling, uh, suggesting that uh, perhaps he uh, was also sometimes intemperate and you might want to uh, couch your request of him in the uh, most... Uh, polite uh, possible way. Yes, that merely being the nice Bathory does not make you nice. <laughs> Turns out there's a lot of Bathories. Yeah. So it was uh, originally uh, set up by King Casimir III and uh, a predecessor in 1595, uh, Sigismund III. Uh, there was a bit of an accident uh, because he, it turns out, uh, was an alchemist and he was uh, very big on uh, turning base metals uh, into gold because uh, like any king, that's the main thing he needed to fund armies mm-hmm. and stuff. So uh, who can blame him? He had a, a collaborator named uh, Michael Sendovogius. But in uh, 1595, uh, a fire swept through the complex. The al- alchemy room is 
uh, decorated with a an old painting of, of an alchemist who in the painting is trying to bring a dead horse back to life. Um, now, he's using the, the skull of a horse to do that. And I would say, uh, Sigismund, start with a fresher horse. Yes, that's that rule one. Uh, rule two, do it in someone else's castle. Right. Um, and not long after that, in 1609, uh, Sigismund decided, uh, maybe I shouldn't be in the corner of what was uh, then uh, uh, Poland, which included Lithuania at the time, but maybe I should be closer to the middle and closer to Lithuania. And so that's when he uh, moved, uh, picked up and went to Warsaw, and uh, the old uh, royal complex uh, sort of uh, began to gradually uh, deteriorate. Yes, and when we were there, uh, we were not able to see the uh, Museum of uh, Oriental Art because it was closed, as was the Castle Armory. So, sadly, we missed out on seeing the castle's non-perial collection of captured Ottoman tents. Uh, so, maybe next time. Uh, and... Uh, also on Vavil Hill is uh, Vavil Cathedral, which we looked into but did not get to look at the treasury of, so we did not see their Spear of Destiny that they have one of uh, lurking around there uh, because there's only so much time. Yeah, they don't let just anybody paw through the Spear of Destiny. They probably don't. I'm, I'm pretty um, sure. Yes, and still a working cathedral. It's the Cathedral of Kings. So there's all of the tombs of all of the, no doubt, extremely pious and uh, and faithful uh, kings. Yes, uh, if you have a favorite good. Polish king, uh, pre-1609, you can probably find their cenotaph, if not their actual crypt, right there in the cathedral. So, collect them all, kids. So we didn't get to see a flying husser display there. But... but guess what? The National Museum, uh, not not so long a walk away, um, also has an arms and armor uh, exhibit. Uh, and there, uh, the flying hussars are cavalrymen who carried... Of these big feathered regalia on their backs, you know, because otherwise they would just put guns there, and who wants that? Right, they would have ammunition or weapons of some kind. Right. So, what was the deal with the flying? They looked splendid, I'm sure, but uh, did that work out for them? Did the morale crushing effect of these uh, uh, crazy winged opportunances uh, do anything for them? I mean, I think that the the wings begin as sort of evidence that the um. Uh, that the Hussars embody Poland because the Polish, uh, uh, symbol is an eagle, just like our, uh, uh, great bird is an eagle. And so you would have wings to indicate that you are the, you know, embodiments of, of Polish martial vigor. Uh, because you have to have stupid wings on your back, you become a heavily armored cavalry. And so the, um, uh, giant, uh, sort of impact of heavy cavalry is bad enough. And apparently the wings also made a loud noise because there were basically wood frames, uh, on your back. So if you ever put a, a baseball card through your bicycle spokes, it's like that except on a horse. And so, um, when they would make huge, crazy noises like that, they would, uh, make the hussars sound like there was a lot more hussars. And when you're fighting things like, the Tatars, who come in legitimate uh, hordes, and the Ottomans, who come in gigantous armies, uh, making yourself sound big is probably pretty good tactics. And then also, like every dumb thing that you do in a military unit, it builds morale because you can win a battle with giant dumb wings strapped on your back. How badass are you? It's like wearing a cute little beret. That makes you a tougher army guy than an army guy who gets to wear a normal person hat. Yes, they're fighting with one hand and some wings behind their back. Exactly. Also, there was a special exhibit of the works of Stan. Stanislaw Wispiansky, who was a, a poet, playwright, set designer, visual artist, illustrator, and uh, in the uh, Art Nouveau era, and has that really beguiling uh, Art Nouveau uh, line to his uh, his graphic works. We saw a number of his paintings, finally, after a number of yes. runs that are sort of his paper designs for uh, stained glass windows. So he's sort of, I guess, a, a Polish equivalent of like... Uh, uh, Edward Gordon Craig, who uh, was an English uh, polymath of the same period, who also had very uh, cool uh, Art Nouveau designs and, and lots of theories about how uh, stagecraft should be uh, presented. And I think well, kind of like a of, very early version of Cocteau or Matisse, who also sort of did that multimedia stuff. Uh, yeah, so he's uh, he's part of that whole worldwide, uh, uh, or at least uh, Western worldwide uh, movement. Uh, but he's the Polish version of that, and yep. uh, you can see why the uh, current uh, government would see him as a, a patriotic uh, figure due to his focus on nationhood, and uh, uh, they seem to have uh, 
laid down some coin uh, to collect. Yeah, they, they put together a, a very enormous uh, display and pulled together a lot of Vispiansky. There was something like uh, 500 works in that exhibit alone, plus a collection of his books, including books that he had typeset because he was also a photographer, of course. Of course. Um, and also he was a, uh, a, a devout and artistically minded Catholic, which uh, given Poland's history and Poland's current uh, situation is also probably makes him pretty popular. Uh, so if you're a modernist and a Catholic, you're, you're getting them on both sides, really. Uh, also, you can see, uh, the Leonardo da Vinci painting that you will have the least competition. You'll have fewer people to elbow aside, uh, in that you and I were the only ones looking yes, at it. Yes, I have, I have never been as alone with a Leonardo da Vinci as I was in, uh, the National Museum of Krakow in front of Lady with Ermine, uh, which is, uh, a beautiful Leonardo, although some chunderhead painted over the background. Uh, so she's looks like she's you know getting ready for her green screen close up. Uh, there's always an editor waiting to touch yep. something up. Some dork. Um, and finally, as as if they knew we were coming, uh, they had a really great uh, survey uh, with like one or two paintings per artist of basically uh, modernist painting from the beginning of the last century to now. Yeah, it was it was painting in Poland from 1900 to now. It's called the situation has changed, which is yes. uh, a <laughs> great title. <laughs> it's an understatement if ever there were one. Yes. So we felt uh, quite edified, and uh, now and I, I be- very much like the idea of having all of these paintings from different decades of the 20th century in conversation with each other. They were sort of hung by themes. So all the paintings, the portraits were together. The abstract color work uh, and impressionist color work was together. So you would go into a painting, into a room, and on one side there would be installations, and on one side there would be giant stained glass. Art Nouveau work and there'd be uh, op art and it was all sort of talking to each other across the room. It was a loud conversation, uh, possibly a drunken conversation, but it was certainly, I think, an interesting way to look at what all of those things are saying in reaction to other kinds of art, which in fairness is how a lot of artistic movements come is you are looking at one kind of art and you say, I'm not doing that. And then right. you do something else. And, and and very dialed into what was going on at that time in the rest of Europe. So yeah. if you went to a Similar exhibit of Canadian art, uh, the early part of the 20th century would still be very sort of uh, nouveau slash impressionist inspired. And it took a long time for uh, modernism to take hold. Uh, I've seen equivalent shows in Australia or an equivalent show in Australia. And uh, they were a little more uh, wired into what was going on in Europe. But, uh, of course, Poland, it's in Europe. So it's in were, Europe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, even with the communist regime, the uh, there was still lots of art being created that was very much uh, part of what was going on. The uh, the, the aesthetic Iron Curtain uh, was not in effect. Yeah, and the, the, the whoever curated this did not uh, bother to put a ton of socialist realism into it. So you're, you're I mean, there's a little bit, but it's not as overwhelming as it must have been to be have to be an artist in Poland between 1945 and 1990. They felt empowered to leave in the good stuff. Yes, and. Uh, in the uh, the arms and armor section, uh, there was a snuff box, and that prefigures our next segment. Uh, so let's uh, clamber through this commercial and uh, see what exactly that segment might be. Pastor, who's the great old one and who's the greatest old one? Time to find out. It's WrestleNomicon, con, 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 the card game from veterans of Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, Epic Spell Wars, and Delta Green. As a fan of all things good, Max Nestorowicz said, I've never played something that captures the rhythm and back and forth of a fighting game like WrestleNomicon from Arc Dream Publishing. Plus, it's filled with eldritch horror goodness, premium puns, and A-plus artwork. Back it while you can. Find WrestleNomicon ConCon at Kickstarter or at WrestleNomicon.com. It's time once more for the History Hut. And why break a theme uh, when we've had three segments about our trip to Poland? And let's uh, look at a, an exciting uh, post-historical figure who could uh, 
uh, enter into uh, your historical gaming. Uh, he was a, a dashing figure. If you look at the uh, portraits of him, he looked kind of like Rufus Sewell. Um, he is <laughs> Tadeusz Kosciuszko. Uh, he was born in 1746. Uh, he died in 1817. Uh, but his main exploits uh, happened uh, uh, from... Uh, 1776 to the uh, to the end of the 18th century. Uh, so, Ken, uh, where do we start? Uh, where does his story start to become exciting? I mean, it depends on how exciting you find uh, stories about people who are cadets. Uh, they study in Paris. They move back to Poland because their brother has squandered their estates during a civil war. And they uh, romance the daughter of the owner of the estate they're working on and are beaten within an inch of their life. That was a pretty exciting story, I'll bet. But the It's ex- kind of a war and PC. The, the it story. is. It is kind of. And so rather than continue to be beaten up by Polish landowners, he went to America where the landowners didn't beat you up if you were Polish. and uh, Or at least not yet. Uh, he uh, joined the Revolutionary War because while he was in Paris, he had imbibed the spirit of the philosophes. He uh, was sent to America by Beaumarchais, who was sending every European with a sword and a Rufus Sewell-like profile to fight uh, for freedom. Many of them not particularly effectively, but it only takes one to turn it all around, and that one was Kosciuszko. Uh, he arrives, uh, is assigned to the Continental Army. Uh, he begins as a volunteer on Ben Franklin's say-so, basically, and they put him to work because he's trained in military engineering, which pretty much no one in America was. They set him up to defend Philadelphia because when Congress appoints you to, uh, to, to, uh, to an army position, they think you should defend Congress. And indeed he did. <laughs> you, you look like a man who can build a fort and we, we have a place that needs one where we are. But having, having protected Congress from, uh, the hated British, which of course <laughs> it wouldn't do because the Congress ran away when the hated British showed up, uh, he was put in charge of uh, fortifications for the army of General Horatio Gates, who was being attacked by a uh, gentleman, Johnny Burgoyne, out of uh, Canada. And uh, Gates said, uh, please stop Burgoyne from attacking me. And with a will, uh, Kosciuszko started chopping down logs and building log forts all across um, uh, Burgoyne's line of advance. It slows down Burgoyne, who has a huge logistical train. Uh, the Continental Army is able to escape. They get to a spot uh, far enough from the British that Gates says, you are pretty good at that. Find me somewhere where we won't die. And uh, Kosciuszko finds Bemis Heights, which is a hill overlooking the Valley of Saratoga, New York, fortifies it within an inch of its life. Uh, the hated British show up and indeed batter themselves to pieces trying to stop General Gates and Kosciuszko's fortifications. And uh, that is the place that the British attempt to reconquer America, founders for good, it turns out. Uh, he then sort of uh, repeats his success. He, uh, in between that, he f- fortifies West Point, uh, which is, of course, now the military academy, but at that point was the key to the Hudson Valley, uh, then goes back and works with uh, General Gates again in the South and with Nathaniel Green, uh, again doing sort of field fortifications that slow the British advance, finally picking the battle site at Guilford Courthouse, and channeling the British into it, which destroys Cornwallis's most of his ability to operate without uh, uh, naval support, forcing Cornwallis to march to the, to the coast, and indeed pen himself up in Yorktown, where he loses the war. So, in many ways, uh, thanks to Tadeusz Kosciuszko, we won, and uh, we were very, very happy with that. He became a best buddy with uh, Thomas Jefferson, and then... Uh, heard that uh, the spirit of revolution had spread to his beloved Poland and uh, goes back, tries to get a job in the Polish army. He's got many more creds now than he did when he was a uh, being beaten cadet. Yeah. Uh, helping America to win the war. That's, that's a pretty good uh, con card. That is a good, a good credential. He's put in charge of uh, one whole wing of the Polish army fighting the hated Russians. And it turns out, uh, three to one odds, even if you're Kosciuszko, uh, are not a good way to fight a war. So uh, three to one against. And so although he personally never loses a battle, the forces on either flank of his either lose the battle or in the case of the Austrians connive at turning his flank. And so he is forced to do a fighting retreat until uh, the king surrenders 
to uh, the Russians and basically signs the death knell for Polish independence there. Uh, he then leads a rebellion against uh, the Russians in, in 1794. 1794. And uh, after the, the uh, partition uh, has, has shrunk Poland down to a rump state, he leads a rebellion against the Russians, which uh, he has to do it early because there's a great deal of um, uh, political intrigue to set up a rebellion. The Russians twig to it. And so he has to start the rebellion before he wants to. The rebellion is... You don't want to say doomed, but it's doomed. And uh, the right. Russians... And, and you know he's instrumental in it because it's called the Kosciuszko Uprising. So Right. Instead of the Kosciuszko Revolution or yes. the Kosciuszko Establishment of Poland again. Um, so he is captured by the hated Russians. The Russians massacre 20,000 people in Warsaw to stamp out the rebellion. And um, uh, he's put in prison in St. Petersburg. He's freed by the next czar after Catherine the Great because... The, uh, Paul's, uh, policy is anything Catherine wanted, I don't want. I mean, and, and Catherine's a bit of a grudge holder. Yeah. He didn't want to give back Poland, but he did want to let Kosciuszko go. So Kosciuszko goes back to America and, uh, prospers somewhat, uh, based on uh, a grateful nation loving him and being buddies with Thomas Jefferson. He is, he accumulates something of an estate and then Napoleon says, what if I rebuilt Poland? And Kosciuszko goes back, meets Napoleon, calls him the grave digger of the revolution, which is a great phrase, and refuses to fight for Napoleon or for the Tsar, and basically sits out the war in Switzerland by the end of it. And that's the story of Kosciuszko. He he dies in Switzerland, uh, falling off of a horse, and uh, at, at, at an advanced age, it's not just that he fell off a horse and dies. He's, you know, getting up there. If, if you're going to fall off a horse and die, like postpone that as long as you can. Yeah, right. Ideally, he uh, attempts to emancipate his peasants, but the czar refuses to allow him to do that. He left his uh, American money for the manumission of slaves, including Thomas Jefferson's slaves, which must have been a conversation. And Jefferson then says, I can't execute that will. I'm too old and feeble. <laughs> And, and also, also I like can't. slaves. Yeah. And um, uh, it turns out that his will is eventually honored by establishing a school for African-Americans in Newark, which is not the same thing at all, but I guess it's better than nothing. So uh, uh, Kosciuszko fought the good fight, but lost every time except when uh, America really needed him. So good for him. So uh, he's got a pretty busy career here. There's lots of event and moment. And if we want to have him show up and do adventurous things uh, that are not known to history, it seems to me that the time for him to be, you know, fighting ghouls and uh, and Bigfoots is uh, during his sort of exile in America, the second one, after he, when he's hanging around with Jefferson in 1796. Right. And the reason I think ghouls have something to do with him is that uh, his uh, there's a mound, a, a monument to him in, in the shape of a mound, when we think of mound, well, maybe it's snake people. I don't know. Um, could be, could be sixty-one, could be half a dozen. The other. Well, Jefferson was always alert to the problems of dinosaurs and megalonyxes in the Great American West. Yeah, and had agents all over the American West gathering him monster parts. So Kosciuszko could have been in charge because, he, if, like you say, if they find a mound, who knows mounds better than America's premier military engineer, uh, Kosciuszko? Go dungeon delve for us. And the tour guide at uh, Wawel Castle. Uh, made sure to mention Kosciuszko to the English-speaking visitors because he's interesting not only to Americans but also to Australians because the biggest mountain in Australia is named after him because the uh, Irish explorer who uh, was the first Westerner to uh, to claim it and put a name on it, uh, uh, no doubt uh, to the surprising consternation of the people who are already there, um, decided to name it after Kosciuszko. Mark Morrison, who's an Aussie, said that they mispronounce it there. So I assume it's called Mount Kangaroo. Yeah, that's Australian for everything. But I think uh, the, the the main point here is that the adventures that you have with him as uh, a patron and uh, occasional uh, rider to the rescue uh, are probably uh, dinosaur hunting, snake people hunting, looking out for ghouls, um, all the sorts of typical uh, monsters that are... Uh, Haunting America. You and Daniel Boone and uh, Lewis and Clark and Kosciuszko fighting monsters for Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, well, you, you got to clear those monsters out in order to... Uh, Settle the West. Yeah. Um, so, uh, on that note, uh, I think it's time for us to uh, let our glorious trip to Poland to uh, recede into the background. And we'll be back next week 
with a plain old ordinary unthemed episode with not uh, not even a drop of hazelnut liqueur in it. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Show your love for this podcast in the form of a handmade snuff box. Or failing that... By joining such backers as Volpine, Jamie Twine, Tom Bowen, Ryan Lassiter, and Chris McLaren. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nod Knowingly if you're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.